The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, with hearts and with voice, we give you praise. We have sung and prayed and through it all considered the marvelous work that you have done on our behalf. You've been kind to rescue and you are kind still today to continue to lead, to shepherd and to guide and to carry us home. And we say, praise the name of the Lord. You've done great things marvelous in our sight. We also acknowledge that while we marvel and while we praise, we have no idea of the scope of it because we, we don't understand lostness and we don't yet understand glory. But for the part that we see, we say praise your name and then we plead, carry us home to more. Carry us even now into more. Teach us and guide us, Lord, we pray. Open up your word to us. Help us to understand something of your grace and your goodness. Would you be teacher to us today? Lord, as was already prayed, would you clear away any, any barrier, any, if there is a sin barrier in some hearts, clear those things away through confession and repentance. If there are physical distractions of some sort or another, resolve them, clear them away. We don't want to be sitting under your word and miss your word. We don't want you to speak and us not to hear. So we pray, Lord, by your spirit now, would you open up clear lines of communication, your voice to our hearts. Make it so, please. Would you give me clarity to speak? Would you give freedom to us in this moment to speak and to hear in the Spirit what you say to us? And would you please build a people, to build a people who commune with you, who commune with you, Lord, because it is, it is indeed the right thing to do, but who commune with you really beyond considering what is the right thing to do, but can commune with you because it is our delight. It's the thing we want to do. Shape our hearts, Lord, so that this seems to be what it is, beautiful. To hear from you and to walk with you, to be with you. Shape us this morning, Lord. Speak through your word here. Thank you. Pray that you lift up Christ and that you would build your church. In his name we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 2 where we encounter the one story in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus as a child. We've heard the announcement to Mary she was going to have a son, that was back in chapter 1. And then we saw the announcement of his birth after he was born, that was in chapter 2. And then last week, beginning in verse 22 of this chapter, we considered the events around his dedication at the temple in Jerusalem. Having come there to obey the requirements of the law, Mary and Joseph, with Jesus in tow, they encountered two different people. They, they came up to Jerusalem and they, and they met two people, both of whom were characterized as righteous and holy and worshipful and God-oriented and expectant. Simeon's the main character. There's, there's a woman at the end named Anna, but Simeon's the, the focus of the section. And it says three times, so that we don't miss it, that he was filled with, directed with, empowered by the Spirit of God. So we know that when he speaks, what he says is a word from God to us. And it says that he was living long time expectant, waiting for the consolation of Israel, or as Anna says later, the redemption of Jerusalem. Different words mean the same thing. God had long ago promised, we read of this in the book of Isaiah, that he would bring a day of deliverance, a day of, of redemption, where he would bring his people out of 
all of the awful consequences of, of downcast suffering and exile due to them because of their sin. That's the first half of the book of Isaiah. He promised, I will deal with that. I will bring a day, beginning in Isaiah 40, he begins to talk of this, a day of great comfort, a day of great consolation, a day of redemption. I will bring the day of my servant, the Messiah. And so he says there, comfort, comfort my people. Consolation, consolation my people. And Simeon was waiting for that day. Long time. Expectant, hopeful. And now, in the Spirit, so we know this is true, he joyfully announces, here it is, here's that day, because here he is, the servant, the Messiah. He's a light shown forth to all the peoples, to Israel first and all the nations around, salvation, Jesus, consolation presented to us. And, that's the beginning and the end of the passage, and in the middle, Simeon has another word to say, because when this light shines forth, it's going to be kind of like a laser beam cutting down all through history, dividing things in half. And on one side, if you get it and if you see what it is that God's offering in this, this Savior, this Messiah, you will get and receive then great consolation and redemption and joy like Simeon and Anna have. And on the other side of that, though, Simeon is, is soberingly realistic that there will be people on the other side of the line who will oppose Jesus, hearts exposed, rejecting. And it's not good news. It's darkness there. So he has these, these two halves. But the abiding characteristic in the chapter is Simeon delighted because here is the consolation of God. Mary and Joseph are surprised by that, certainly. Here's their baby, 40 days old, and they hear again another word that, is, that strikes them and that kind of comes into their hearts and sits there to rattle around. This is the consolation of of the people of God. Hmm. And they think, and they dedicate him, and they go home. That's what brings us to our passage for today. Beginning in Luke, verse 39, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Pass back through it to make a, a couple of the details kind of clear, and then make two observations from this, the, the one story of Jesus as a child. Here's verse 39 and following. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Verses 39 to 40 are our transition passage that take us from the temple really kind of back to the temple 12 years later. They, they leave there, they go back probably to Bethlehem, pick up their things and head back home to Nazareth, about 80 miles away from Jerusalem. And then 12 years pass, and they come back for Passover. The law required every adult male to come to Jerusalem for one of these great feasts. And 
Women were not required to come, minor children, and Jesus is just barely a minor at this point, not required, but not forbidden to come either. And so here they are, they came up as was their custom. They traveled up, coming from their town with a large group of people, as, as those usually did, and they were heading back with a large group of people. And then they realized, come evening probably, verse 43, that the boy Jesus had stayed behind in Jerusalem. He had not been left there or forgotten. He stayed. He remained. Parents realize it, hurry back the next day. They look all over for him. You can imagine them looking where they stayed, with friends that they knew, until finally, verse 46, after three days they found him, not wailing or frightened or terrified in the street corner, not the local police station, but in the temple. Perfectly content, sitting there, wowing people. To get the picture here, we need to understand some things about the temple, uh, what, what this place was. As Israel was coming into the land, having left Egypt long ago, centuries before, God had said he was going to pick one place where he would cause his name to dwell uniquely and powerfully. Of course, God is present everywhere, but he would pick one place where his presence would be uniquely central. This temple, this place. A place where God would meet with people. And perhaps we are most accustomed to thinking of that meeting of God and people as involving things like sacrifice and worship and prayer. And the temple was definitely about that. That definitely happened there. But also, it was a place of teaching. On the temple grounds and in the various courtyards, in the, the, the buildings that surrounded the central place, there were the teachers of the law gathered. And there were many teachers of the law, lots of them. They would come there, they would sit down, and learners, those who wanted to learn, those who, who wanted to understand God's word and who he was and to know about him and his ways and how his people were to live in relation to him, those who wanted to learn about this would gather around the teachers and they would sit and little classes essentially would form. Not, not in classrooms, not with blackboards, but groups with a rabbi, a teacher, sitting there. And they would talk. The style of teaching was very heavily, heavy on dialogue, a question and answer and explanation and illustration. It's the very kind of thing that if we read later in Luke, in chapters 20 and 21, we see Jesus doing it himself. It says he was there teaching in the temple. He makes a statement. Somebody asks him a question. He illustrates it, maybe gives a parable, polishes it off with, with some sort of general application, and somebody then extends it onto something else, and back and forth the dialogue goes. That was very, very common in the temple, in the temple courtyards. Going on all the time. And so 12-year-old Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, went up to the place where God dwells, sat down in one of these groups, maybe several of these groups, as a student, among the teachers, and for three days, verse 47, just listened to them and asked questions. As a student. He was a student in that environment. They probably couldn't tell that he was only 12, but he's clearly a boy in a man's world. He would have been much younger than most people gathered there. And he's a student. He's engaged in the normal asking and then responding to questions asked of him. He's just listening and learning. That's the format. But as anybody who can, anybody can tell you who's taught anything, you can quickly figure out who the bright students are by the questions that they ask. That's what was amazing. He wasn't instructing and amazing the teachers by what he was teaching them. He was amazing the teachers by what he's asking them. And how quickly he connects the concepts and moves on to the next question and explores that. And doesn't that relate to And What about? That's what was amazing. They weren't finding a 12-year-old mind in a 12-year-old boy. Something else. He's learning. He's exploring things here in the temple right after Passover. And while we don't know what they talked about, wouldn't you have loved to have been in the class? Just, just imagine what Jesus would have been asking about when a couple days before, that altar, that great big altar right over there, had had the lamb on it. Hmm. What would they have been exploring? 
He asks, they answer, they talk, and he's a cause of amazement. And when his parents finally find him in the temple and question him, his response corrects their expectations. They were thinking wrongly about him. And he issues a statement here, which are the first words of Jesus in the gospel. So they're important. The first thing that Jesus says about himself, he introduces himself to us with this sentence. So what we're going to look at is essentially his response. Shape kind of some of the context to it, and then in particular what it is that he said and how that reveals to us who he is. So we're going to turn to Jesus' words now. I'm going to make two observations from the passage. Here's the first one. In Jesus, the divine Son of God has joined himself to genuine human nature. In Jesus, the divine Son of God has joined himself to genuine human nature. This is what the word we often use around Christmas time. This is what this word means incarnation, in the flesh. God in the flesh. Now, surely Jesus is the divine Son of God. It doesn't, that's not the main emphasis here. I'm, I'm getting around to the, the human part. That's the main point. But we carry into this and have to, have to keep in our minds, carry into this that he is indeed fully God. From the very beginning, where he was introduced to us, the angel announcing that his birth would be completely unlike any other human birth, he said to Mary that this child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God, uniquely, unlike any of us. And that title, Son of God, it was used of lots of kings and rulers, but what it means when applied to Jesus gets fleshed out as we move through the book of Luke. We find things like Satan challenges Jesus to turn a stone into bread. Because you are the Son of God, you can do this. You can change matter. He chases out demons. He commands the, the demonic forces, and they recoil from him, acknowledging, we know you are the Son of God. He commands demonic forces because that's who he is. What we see defined here is that this term, Son of God, when instead of Jesus, essentially means God the Son. It's affirmed for us, it's alluded to here in Jesus' comments. He mentions, I must be in my Father's house. And he says, my Father. He's turning something here. Using something, using that little language there that's culturally almost impermissible. Certainly unusual. There's a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus described the Father as my Father, and the Jews go to stone him, it says, because in calling God my Father, he made himself equal to God. This is 12-year-old Jesus making a statement. God, my Father, and me, fully God, divine nature. But that's not the main point. We have to carry that in mind because the main emphasis here is that this divine Son has willingly, humbly embraced genuine human nature. He has joined himself to humanity, taken on flesh, taken on a human nature forever. We have two natures here. Joined together forever. Not joined in some way that, that mingles them together so that there's a third nature, like a, a human God or a divine man. It's the nature of God, divine nature, and the nature of man, true, genuine humanity, forever joined together, two, side by side. Not mixed up. This baby conceived in Mary, this 12-year-old boy here, and Jesus now and forever had, and right now, even now, has a genuine human nature. He is fully God and fully man. Now, I know most of us here are Christians, and, and sure, I mean, you've been saying that for years and years and years, fully God, fully man. Yeah, we've got to think about this. This is interesting. 
fully man. We've got to think about it, but we have to acknowledge that he is fully God and fully man in a unique sense. And that's a little unique, like one time only ever. So at some point, we're going to run into some complexity here that we cannot understand because it's not like anything else anywhere. We understand things by comparison, and there's nothing to compare this to. So we, we run into some complexity here that will indeed befuddle us, but we have to think about it. It is real. He is God and is clearly human. Before and after, verses 40 and 52 clearly show us Jesus as a human. He grows, he's a child. He becomes more than he is. He increases. You can't say this about God. Jesus increases in stature, in his body, in favor with God and man as he's growing up. Critically, he also increases in wisdom. Implied in verse 40 and stated clearly in verse 52, he increased in wisdom. That means at some point he knows less and then at some point he knows more about the truth, about how life works, about the truth of God even. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. We see him also here. What's going on? He's sitting here in the temple at the feet of other human teachers learning. Wait a minute, I thought, he, I thought Jesus is God. How can he learn? He is fully God, and he's fully man. And if you ever find a man that knows everything, he's not a man. A man that's omniscient isn't a man. He is fully God, and he is a 12-year-old boy who is increasing in wisdom, who asks a genuine question and gets an answer that he says, Oh, I just learned something, says Jesus. We don't often think in this much detail about this. He is fully God and fully man. He is clearly divine and joined to, has taken on a genuine human nature. He is a person. But he is more than just ordinary, familiar human nature. The teachers are amazed, not because they find good, solid 12-year-old thinking. They're amazed because they find something far beyond what this kid should know. These are people who teach for a living, who teach this material for a living. They've given their whole lives to it, and they're looking at this kid and saying, what? How do you think like that? Not, how have you been given divine knowledge? This is a person, but how do you think like that? What you're seeing in this 12-year-old boy is a, is a real, live kid. But more than just an ordinary kid, this is a kid unmarred by fall on his mind. He does not suffer. Mentally, he does not suffer the great curse of depravity marring a human mind. He's not glorified yet. He's still physically subject to death, obviously. But he's not fallen in sin either. He's not marred by depravity, but he is like he, like people was and are supposed to be not omniscient but incredibly bright and incredibly quick and incredibly insightful and strong and deep in connection and understanding and wisdom remarkably so this is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form fully god and fully i might emphasize fully man man that like man is supposed to be It's, it's almost impossible. Like you put these, put these sentences together. This is the omnipotent one in meek vulnerability. This is the omniscient one in a, in a finite mind. But he is a glorious person. 
this is where our thinking, if, if we push this and we think about this, something, I think something wonderful emerges out of this. When you look at Jesus, now there's a lot, there are a lot of things here, I acknowledge, there are a lot of things here that are very complicated. And how can that be that these two natures are joined together? I, you know, it, I don't know. But some things are clear, and they are amazing. Jesus was pleased to take on and still has a fully, genuinely human nature. And when we look at him, what we are seeing is genuine humanity, true humanity, displayed and affirmed. We can look at Jesus, and what we see when we look at him is, this is what, so not, not me, but you can look at Jesus and say, this is what humanity, this is what man or woman, humanity really is. Look at me. This is humanity. And we are tempted to say, believe me, I know what man is. I mean, look. So we got Jesus over here, and now let's, let's be honest. Let's, let's look at what is, what is man. And we, don't have to, we look at the newspaper and we say, there's mankind. The newspaper is full of terrors and tragedy and wreckage. And yes, a feel-good story on page four. And then back to the wreckage and the troubles and the problems. And some of it is just in, incredibly impossible to resolve conundrums about how do we keep from, you know, the article in the paper this last week of the National Park Service urges us to cut down on our air pollution. Well, good idea. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't heard that one before. How do we do that? There's what man does. The beauty of the national parks being obscured by pollution. There it is. That's what man is. And we could keep reading through the paper and we see all the disasters, the evil and the terror. Because sometimes we talk about man and there's stuff, I mean, there's stuff in your minds where you're like, oh my word, he's making a joke out of this talking about pollution. The people that I know are wicked. Did that to me. There's that too. And then there's just the incidental stuff. You drive by a garbage landfill, a strip mine. You say, man, 100 years ago that was beautiful until we touched it. Now look at it. I know what man is. Yeah. And that's why we all want to go on vacation all by ourselves off in the mountains to get away from people because even when they're not bad, they're just kind of, nah. But here's Jesus. A 12-year-old boy that as you talk to him, your mouth falls in. What? How do you understand that? That's what Jesus is saying is, no, this, everything you read in the newspaper, everything you know in life, that's not actually real, genuine humanity. It's a, it's a twisted, ugly caricature. It's not what it was supposed to be and not what it will be. Look at me and you see what genuine humanity is. Not even glorified yet. But there's, a, there's a, a person here. There's a being here that when you see it revealed in all of its glory, you will be shocked and stunned more so than teachers looking at a 12-year-old, you will see, we all will see, we will be, if you are a Christian, you will be a creature, a human, a man or a woman, glorious, made in the image of God, unmarred by sin, with a mind that's not crippled, with a body that doesn't fall apart anymore. It'll be amazing, stunning, real people. Jesus displays that and affirms that humanity is not to be discarded, not to be rejected, not even, we talk, sometimes we read the newspaper or sometimes we drive by a prison or, or drive by a certain street in a certain edge of town where we see people lying in the gutter, the scumbags, the scum of the earth. No. Marred by a caricature of a dis, a, a twisted and marred, yes, but the image of God is in people. And God 
affirms it, identifies this is what it's supposed to be, and I affirm that. In fact, I will take it and I will own it myself for eternity. The image of God is forever joined to the image of man. These two natures. I said that wrong. The image, the nature of God is joined to the nature of man. But obviously, it is not what it's supposed to be at the moment. In Jesus, we see something marvelous, but we also know that the reason it's marvelous is that it's totally not the way everybody else is. That's true. Which is why the incarnation displays and affirms genuine humanity. And in the incarnation, God is at work to redeem fallen humanity from the curse and to the glory that it is supposed to have. So if you will, Jesus became truly man to move man back to be truly man. The divine Son was up to something when he joined himself to genuine humanity. That's what takes us to the second point. So the first one was about the person that we see sitting here, this person of Jesus in, in this story, and now we are about the purpose of Jesus. The second point, the Son has been sent to communicate His Father to us. The Son has been sent to communicate His Father to us. Verse 49, as he answers Mary's question, this is the statement. He says, I must be in my Father's house. Which is a statement about divine necessity. That must be, originally it's just a single word, and it's about necessity, have to be. Not just want to be or should be, but it has to be this way because God has made it so. It's necessary for me. I have to be. It's what I'm about. It's what I'm for. It's why I'm here. Jesus says, I must be in thee. And literally, in the sentence that he says there, literally there's room left right in the middle of that sentence for an assumed word. So really it reads, I must be in the blank of my father. We've got to fill in. What's the blank? In the context of the question and where he's sitting, it is, it is surely right to fill in house or temple or something like that. I must be in the house of my father. I must be in my father's house. That, that's right. But the wrinkle there and the, the skipping of the word makes us kind of look at it again and notice and think. Something odd there. This isn't really a statement about physical location in a physical building. That should be obvious when we consider right after he says this strong statement, I must be, it's of divine necessity that I be, he leaves. And then even when he becomes adult, an adult, he spends very little time in the temple, in the building itself. Very little time, by comparison. He's not really concerned with, that isn't really a statement about the building. The actual physical building. Perhaps we can see it if we see him gesturing. I must be about this. As he sits there in the middle of the temple, I must be about this. What's going on? All the teachers and all the students in the house of his father. He's in the midst of the business of the temple. He must be about what this place is about, and in particular, right here in this moment as you see me, what I must be about is communicating my Father to people, about connecting these two, about teaching, guiding, joining together. So the Son has been sent, and the Son must be about Communicating his Father to us in the temple and everywhere. And I, I could say teach, but I'm using the word communicate on purpose because a lot of what Jesus teaches and a lot of how he 
expresses and connects us to God the Father is what we might say is more caught than taught. Of course, it's teaching. But I want to say communicate. He communicates a lot by modeling. We look at him and we see perfect humanity as he grows up, as he walks, even as he leaves submissive to his mother. He walks away, he walks through life, and he models perfect, genuine humanity in how he lives and what he thinks about God and how he trusts in relation to God, believing what the Lord says. And how he obeys, doing what the Lord says. And how he rests at peace because of what the Lord says. Now he delights in God, joyful over what God says. Now he does it all in the power of God as the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him and directs him in every single thing he does. He is constantly the true, genuine man, humanity, always about the business of his Father. Modeling that for us. So we look at him and we see what genuine humanity looks like, what's intended for us as image bearers. He's teaching, he's communicating something to us there. And he is communicating God to us more directly as he models God for us. Fully man and fully God. This is a little more complicated because when we look at Jesus, most people who looked at Jesus would have just thought there's the guy Jesus touching the leper. That guy, that teacher named Jesus, has great compassion on and great love towards and great mercy towards and amazing power from God as he heals him, in fact. We know as we read further on that Jesus said, would say later that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We're seeing in Jesus what true humanity is to be and what God truly is, modeled Now, of course, also he explicitly taught. It's called rabbi for a reason. He taught, 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 taught in word constantly. He was preeminently a teacher as he walked around. But he was different than the other rabbis. When he says in verse 49, I must be in my father's house. I must be about this, in the midst of this. He says, my father. We talked about how that reminds us of his deity, but it also tells us something else. He's not talking about someone he has heard of. He's talking about someone that he knows. So when he teaches us, This is who God is. When he walks him in front of us and when he explains him in word, he's giving us the truth. So there's an obvious exhortation in in all of this. This is what Jesus is about. And we should note how his parents respond to him. They didn't understand it, but Mary treasured it up in her heart. So, briefly, I want to say, do you understand him, and do you listen to him? And what you don't understand, do you treasure up in your heart and keep pondering? This is the one who, with word, explains to us the truth about his Father, and walks in front of us, living, showing us, this is God, and this is what people are to be like in relation to him. I am the true God and true man. Learn from me. Are you concerned about that? Are you committed to it? A bunch of us would say yes, but in fact, our Bible's parked on our shelves where we left it last month. There's an exhortation there, obviously. But that's not the main point. The point's about Jesus. So think about this. Hover here on something. I must be. Why? Because God the Father sent him to do this. It's what he's about. He has to be. Consider in this then that there's grace of God that is remarkable here. 
Because even, even before our sin, remove sin for a second here, even before our sin, we are finite people. There is so much that we do not know. We do not understand how the world works. We don't understand how we ourselves work. We don't understand the depths of our own hearts. We don't understand the spiritual realm. We don't know anything about how darkness is. We don't even know who God is and how God works. Let, before our sin, we are finite people who were created to walk with God in the garden and have him teach us. We are made as receivers even before sin. And now after sin, that's all been marred. We walk through a world confused, ignorant of the greatest and most important realities. And God, in great grace, said, it must be the case. I, I am sending you the consummate teacher. He will show you. He will be a visual display of what you are to be and of who I am and how we are to relate together. And he will explain it in word also. This is God's goodness to us to say, I have designed something and I am determined. And God the Son says, and I equally am committed to teaching you to shape you and grow you and help you and bless you. So often, tragically, unfortunately, we regard the word of God particularly certain parts of it, as like limitation or restraint. I mean, you think of anything, we sometimes see it as, oh, I have to do and I can't do. If you're a parent, you kind of think about this and you understand, my kids might see it that way, but I'm doing that because I love them. If I didn't love them, I think it was posted maybe right here, maybe over the urinal. The opposite of love is indifference. Does somebody see that? Did any women see that? <laughs> Maybe it's over the urinal then. <laughs> if God just said, you guys are lost, good luck with that. You're confused and ignorant. Man, tough being you. Where would we be? But in great love, he has said, I am going to engage to teach, 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 guide, correct, Rebuke when necessary. Train up in righteousness. I will give you my word spoken and modeled and lived out of gracious love to you. A great blessing. He gives his word and then sends his son to communicate himself to us in HD in brilliant, shining light and great clarity. Communicated in lots of different ways in book, in the creation, and then lastly, he sent his son. This is good of God. It is kind of God. And we are fortunate that the son was so determined to communicate his father to us. Not only in concept, but personally. The other reason I've used the word communicate is that it's very close to the word commune and communicable, common roots back there. Communicable things are things that are passed on such that you get it, catch it, you receive it. He's communicating, he's teaching, he's modeling, he's showing us things. But it is not that he only, and that God only wants him to be passing on information about, he wants to pass on God himself to us to bring God to us, to communicate God to us, to cause us to commune with God so that God the Father, His Father, and we could be joined together and to commune, which is what the house is about. The house is not just about an exchange of information. The house is ultimately about an exchange of information so that God and man can be joined together. When Jesus says, I am determined to be about, I have to be about, I was sent to be about this, he doesn't just mean the exchange of facts. He means this. His father and the people joined. He's constantly a teacher, but constantly a connector of his father to us. And that takes us, it must cause us to skip one more step 
and say, ultimately what this house is about is sacrifice for the sake of communion. There's a gigantic altar in the temple courtyard. He sent as a teacher. And in this sacrifice, he does his best teaching. He is sent as a connector. And in the sacrifice, he accomplishes the connection. The determination of God to communicate himself to us meant that he sent a teacher. And it also meant that he sent a priest and a sacrifice. One who would be in the house and about the house, what this house is for. So we see the cross ordained from eternity past, the reason the Son was sent and took on genuine, real humanity. We see in the cross that God communicates to us, shows us what real humanity is to be like. Humble and submissive and concerned about the needs for others and beneath the will of the Father and trusting in the Father's hand even when it raises the knife to slay Him. That's what the real Son is like. What real humanity is. Dependent and obedient and submissive and trusting. And He shows us what God Himself is really like. The fullness of deity in great grace, full of mercy, and determined love. He says, I will in power make a way to wipe away sin. The thing that stands between us that I cannot be communicated to you, I myself will wisely and powerfully, graciously, mercifully, with determination, act to pull away. And I will tear the curtain apart, and I will join myself to my people. The Son is a teacher, and He is the consummate teacher when He is also the sacrifice, connecting us to the Father, restoring us then. That's how He restores us. That's what begins the work of restoring us to what we are supposed to be and what we one day will be, pulling us out of our fallenness, breaking the curse of sin on us, bringing us back into the image, connecting us to and renewing us in the image that we were made. This is awesome stuff. Now, I just breezed over like chapters in a systematic theology book. I mean, there's like massive sections written about all of that. And I was really light in the details. But brothers and sisters, this has to fall on you. When the son says, I must be about this, didn't you know I would be here? Of course, this is, why, this is why I'm here. I must be in the middle of this, communicating the Father to you. He means that for you. To communicate the Father to you. To teach and ultimately to connect. Not just with concept, but very personally. And to restore you into this fellowship that is life. To fix you and make you new. That has been accomplished. It is being accomplished also, but it has been done. And it was on purpose. It was all the will of the Father done by a determined Christ who must be in His Father's house. Jesus introduces himself to us like this. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's? In his house. About his mission. Connecting you to him. That's why I'm here. And he accomplished that mission. Now, he is renewing us day by day. And that gets us back to the exhortation. If, if, if he's going to teach, we should listen. But the greatest, the most decisive act of communicating the Father to us has been done. That's grounds for worship. It's grounds for rest and joy 
However it is that strikes you, if it strikes you as with delight or relief, both are appropriate. God has done something great in joining the nature of God to the genuine nature of man. What he's accomplished in that is communicating the Father to us, instructing us, but ultimately sacrificing the righteous, genuine man, Jesus, on the cross to bring us to God and to bring us into our right minds again, to bring us back to right, genuine humanity. This is good news for which we should praise him. Let me pray. Father, I am thankful for the determination of Jesus to be in the center of your house doing your work to teach and guide and connect us to you. I'm thankful for that. And while there are many details that we didn't cover this morning, I pray you would you'd fill in the gaps in the minds of your people. Many of those details are known already, but I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to, to wonder, to marvel at it, to give thanks for it. You chased them down. You chased us down. Someone once described you as the hound of heaven chasing down your prey. You chased us down and you caught us and brought us back to you. And I thank you for that. You're a good and merciful and gracious God. So would you move in your people, Lord, that we would be a people of joy and a people who give attention to what you teach. Certainly you mean for this verse to call us to attend to the rest of the gospel where Jesus teaches. So alert us to that, Lord. Make us sensitive to his guidance, to what he models for us and what he verbalizes to us. Grow us up. Renew us in the image of God. Rejoin us to you in fullness, Lord. We look for the day when that will happen completely. And until then, we pray, would you be at work here? Build your church for our good and for your glory. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.